Well, good morning once again to Rivers Church, or good afternoon, or good evening, whenever you are watching uh, this service. Uh, we are glad, we are humbled, we are thankful to spend uh, these moments uh, together with you as we uh, once again open God's Word in our series to the Gospel uh, of Mark. And uh, we are picking up today Mark chapter 12, uh, just a few verses today. Uh, verses 35 to 37, and I have uh, titled this message, Delighted, uh, Delighted. This message, uh, I believe, was 100%, uh, no question, so relevant to the time and the place that Jesus was speaking these words in the ancient temple in Jerusalem right before he goes to the cross of Calvary. I also believe uh, that these words are just as relevant for us today and uh, where we are in our lives. Um, as you know, as we've been working through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been under trial uh, by an onslaught of opponents, Herodians and Sadducees and Pharisees and teachers of the law, all against him, all seeking to trap him, seeking to destroy him. Why? Why are they seeking to destroy him? Because Jesus is turning everything upside down. He is um, ending the old way of the law, ending the old way of the temple and the sacrifices and uh, all that that meant for the old covenant and the new covenant of grace is coming. Uh, people were upset about this because uh, when you have a political uh, power position or a religious power, power position, you like that control. Uh, you, you don't want some radical teacher uh, coming in and speaking and acting, acting against uh, that position of power and control and wealth that they had. Uh, again, they were the leaders of the great temple on the great Mount Zion in the great city of Jerusalem. And Jesus was saying all of that was coming to an end. And at this point in the story, as we have been watching this unfold uh, every day since Jesus came into Jerusalem in the triumphant entry uh, on that little baby donkey, we renamed that his humble entry. Uh, Every day, Jesus has been uh, responding and really kind of shutting up his opponents again and again and again. This is the verse that we uh, ended uh, our passage last week. It's Mark 12, uh, 34, and it says, And from then on, uh, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Question after question after question, bait seeking to trap, they're trying to destroy. Jesus is shrewd, and he is turning things uh, on their heads. He is putting them in their place over and over. And so at this point, they dare not ask him any more questions. Um, he's not answering questions anymore. Now Jesus, the transition of our text today is now Jesus is going to start asking them questions. And that is uh, where we are in our verses today. So again, uh, Mark 12, verses 35 to 37, uh, we'll read these words uh, together. Uh, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes or the teachers of the law, the lawyers, how can they say that the 
Christ, the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David. Obviously, speaking about King David. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Verse 37, Jesus said this, David himself calls him Lord. Who does he call Lord? David himself calls the Messiah, calls the Christ Lord. And so Jesus asked them this question. So how is he his son? And the great throng, the crowd of people, all the people that were leaning in and listening and watching, it was a great crowd the great throng heard him gladly. Other translations say the crowd was delighted in what Jesus says here to his opponents. This is our passage for the morning. Uh, Jesus is uh, answering a question that his religious opponents can't answer. He is exposing them in this moment. And it was delighting the crowd that was listening. Uh, remember, uh, all the Jews, all the Jewish leaders, all the Jews, they were waiting and expecting and longing for a Messiah. For generations upon generations upon generations, they were waiting on the Messiah, on the Christ to come. And they were hoping, you've probably heard me say this before, you've had other teachers say this before, they were hoping for a military Messiah that would rescue them from Rome. And Jesus, just a few days prior, comes in walking in on a baby donkey, not on a war horse, but on a baby donkey, to which I think they would say, this is the guy that's proclaiming to be the Christ, the Messiah, the one coming in on a baby donkey, on the foal of a donkey. I think they thought it was funny. He's not, Jesus is not the one they wanted. And they, they were rejecting the baby donkey riding guy coming in, claiming to be the Messiah. And he was, honestly, he was, they were coming at him and he was boom roasting them time after time after time. But because they couldn't stand ground with Jesus in these conversations, again, verse 34, they dared not ask him another question. So perhaps the crowd, the throng, the great throng that was there, perhaps they were delighted because Jesus was kind of sticking it to the religious elite and the politicians of the day. Again, Jesus was shrewd. He was out witting them. Perhaps that's why they were delighted, but I don't think that's really the core reason why they were delighted. I think more so it's because Jesus, in speaking these brief words, quoting a passage out of the Psalms, we'll talk about that in just a minute, that he was bringing comfort and hope and clarity to the people in a time and a season of great Chaos, And there was laser clarity in the mission and the message of Jesus. He had laser clarity in the way in which he spoke and the way in which he was acting. And what I want to invite you to consider is that the comfort that they needed and the clarity and the hope that they needed, it was so relevant 
for this great crowd of people. And again, I believe it's just as relevant. We need clarity today and we need hope today in our situation. So I want us to look more closely at why this is so clarifying and comforting and hope filled what Jesus said on this particular day. I'm going to make three main points uh, in our, the rest of our time together. And the first point that I want to make with you is this. Uh, Jesus goes to the scriptures for clarity. Remember what he told the Sadducees a couple of weeks ago when we looked at that passage. He told them, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Who knows the scriptures? The one that wrote the scriptures, Jesus himself. And he goes to the Bible. He goes to the scriptures for clarity in this situation. Um, in our passage specifically, he goes to uh, Psalm 110 and he quotes it. Uh, it is the most quoted uh, psalm. Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. There's some Bible trivia for you. Um, about 20 or so times uh, it is in the New Testament. Uh, we saw Jesus do this a couple of weeks ago as well. He makes multiple biblical references in the way that he is responding to his opponents. He, he goes to the Bible for clarity to make his Point. If you if you were to sit down and you were to open uh, Matthew chapter one uh, in like in your living room or in your office or in your bedroom and you would just begin to flip through Matthew and then Mark and then Luke and then John, here is what you would find: almost every page of every gospel narrative has Jesus quoting some scripture from the Old Testament. So. The New Testament hadn't been given to us yet. It was being written. The gospel is being lived uh, in the moment as we read Mark, but it would come to us later by the power of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is quoting the Old Testament scripture in almost every page of every gospel. He quotes uh, Exodus seven times in his ministry that we have in the Gospels. He quotes the book of Isaiah eight times. He quotes Deuteronomy ten times. And he quotes the Psalms more than any other book of the Old Testament. He quotes the Psalms eleven times. This is what I believe is important for us to know as we, as we grow and as we become students and learners and disciples and learning God's word to, to know Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to follow Jesus, uh, is to follow and trust his authoritative word in our lives. Following Jesus and taking or leaving the scriptures is not, uh, honestly, it's not, uh, it's not a maintainable position because Jesus trusted the Bible and he quoted the Bible over and over and over in his ministry. Following Jesus and following his authoritative word are not mutually exclusive realities of our faith. Following Jesus necessarily means that we follow, that we learn and read and study and follow his word in our lives. So to say, I follow Jesus, but I don't hold to the inerrancy of the scriptures, or I don't hold to the authority of God's word, uh, again, is not an intellectually maintainable 
position because Jesus himself trusted and quoted the Bible over and over again. You don't, you don't tell a friend uh, in your life, hey, I, I trust you, but I don't trust your words, right? Those, those two aren't different. It's like if, if I trust you as a friend, I trust the words that you say to me. They go hand in hand. And so again, Jesus went to the Bible to give people clarity over and over in the gospel. Certainly he does that in our passage today. And it's where we need to go for our clarity and our comfort and our hope in our lives as well. So again, the first point, Jesus goes to the Bible uh, for clarity. The second point uh, is this, uh, the, the specific passage that Jesus quotes is Psalm 110, and it's a messianic prophecy, which is the reason it's quoted so many times in the New Testament, because it's all a prophecy about Jesus. And it says this, as we read through it, the Messiah, the Christ, is David's Lord. And it also says this, what Jesus quoted, and the Messiah is David's son, which is very confusing to the people who are listening to Jesus teach. It had been confusing for them already. How can the Messiah be David's Lord and David's son all at the same time? And Jesus announcing here in the temple during Holy Week, days before his crucifixion, he is saying to the people, uh, this is who I am. I am the Christ. And here is the clarity. I am both. I am both the son of David. I am from the line of David. In his humanity, Jesus is the son of David. He is from the line of David. David. It was the prophecy that the Messiah would come from the line of David. And Jesus is saying, and I am the Lord of David. I am the divine Lord. The Messiah, the Christ is both fully God and fully man at the same time. We've talked about this uh, uh, before. Uh, the uh, kind of the seminary word for it or the theological word for this is called the hypostatic union of Christ. Hypostasis means sameness. So in Jesus, we have one nature and two persons. We have Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time. He is the son of David and he is David's Lord. And he was both, and he's bringing clarity to the situation. And he's saying, I'm not here to be like David. I'm not here to be a king of a group of people that were living at a very specific time in the history of Israel like David. I am here to save all people for all time that come to me in faith. I'm not limited in my kingship like David was, I am the Lord of glory. I am both the son of David and I am the Lord of David at the same time because I am the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So Jesus teaching here, bringing clarity to the confusion about Psalm 110, he brings comfort and hope to the hopelessness of the current affairs because the Messiah was here. This is so relevant that the Messiah who brings comfort 
and hope and clarity to our lives that the Messiah is with us, that he is here, that he dwells among us. It was so relevant for hope then, and it is so relevant for hope today as well. Okay, let's look at our third point of the morning, which is this. The truth is this. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Now, Jesus wasn't the Messiah that the religious leaders and the political elite wanted. In many ways, he wasn't the Messiah that the crowd wanted, but he is the Messiah that every single one of us needs. You see, Jesus didn't He didn't show up as a military messiah to save Israel from Rome. His messianic reign wasn't military. It was spiritual. Jesus came to save us from our sin problem. Jesus came to redeem and restore and reconcile us to God. Now, when when Jesus was here all of these days upon days when he's entering the temple, was Jesus engaging into a very political and religious mess? Yes, Jesus engaged there. He had been at the temple teaching day after day. Uh, was money and uh, power and control, was that abusing people? Yes, and Jesus ministered to those people, certainly with love and compassion over and over and over. But the why behind the what of the way that money and position and power and control abused system, the the why behind that is at the core a heart issue. It is a sin problem, and that at the core is what Jesus came to do is to save us from our sins. The root problem was in the hearts of men. And Jesus came to save and to give us new hearts. I want to encourage you later to uh, go and read. It's a short psalm, but to go and spend some time reading and and looking at Psalm 110. Uh, There's going to be a couple of things in Psalm 10, if you're an astute reader, that you will recognize in terms of kind of a paradox. And the first The first paradox is what Jesus picks up in Mark 12. That's what he's quoting, and it's this. David calls the the Christ uh, Lord. How then can he be his son? There's this paradox of David. It's the son, uh, the Christ is the son of David, but also David's Lord. That's, That's one thing. That's what Jesus was talking about in Mark 12. And when he quotes Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2, but the second The second paradox in this messianic prophecy speaks about the Messiah being a king and a priest. And I want to unpack that um, with you now. A Jewish king and a Jewish priest were incongruent. They they were different people. There was a difference between a Jewish king and a Jewish priest. They were different in person and they were uh, very different in role. What did uh, Jewish people understand their king to be? Well, their king represented God to man. So a Jewish king uh, stood like a 
like an Old Testament prophet, a prophet king, and they, they represent, they're the representative of God to man, and they are all about protecting and enforcing uh, the boundaries and enforcing uh, the, the, the laws and the rules. What, but what about a priest? A priest was a representative of man to God. You see the difference? The king was a representative of God to man, and a priest was a representative of man to God. And a priest uh, in uh, Old Covenant uh, Judaism, uh, there were things like uh, medical care. They carried the role of medical care. That's why when Jesus healed the leper, remember what he told the leper. Right after the leper was healed, Jesus said, go and present yourself to who? To the priest. So they engaged with compassion and they were, they were ministers. They were medical care, ministers of mercy and social services. But they were distinct. They were different. Well, like Jesus is the son of David and he is David's Lord, Jesus is both the manifestation of our king and our priest. It is both and. I hope I'm making sense. I hope you're uh, making this connection. Um, uh, here's how Jesus presents God to us. Here's a verse from Colossians 1.15. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. He presents God to us, Jesus. Well, he also presents us to God. There's a verse, uh, Romans 8.34, uh, when then is the one who condemns, or who then, excuse me, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Jesus interceding for us like a priest before the Father. 1 John 2, chapter 1, another uh, reference of Jesus um, presenting us to God the Father. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We're not going to understand who Jesus fully and really is unless we understand that he is both. He is both fully the son of David. He is fully human and he is fully divine. He is David's Lord. He is also our eternal king representing God to us, and also he is our eternal priest advocating, interceding for us before the Father. This is good news, everyone. This truth gives us so much clarity to our confusion when life feels chaotic and fearful and unknown and hard and discouraging. Jesus is fully human. He has faced every temptation that we have faced. He can sympathize with us. And he is the Lord of glory that we trust in his power. He is our king. He is protecting us. He is 
coming for us. He is speaking on behalf of God to us, and he is our priest. He is ministering compassion and hope and love to us. All in Jesus, our priest and our king, our Lord, who puts his enemies under his feet. Um, Let me read that verse with you again from Mark chapter 12. And again, he's quoting Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Who are are the enemies that this is referencing? I want to read a couple of verses from Romans 5. This is Romans 5 verses 9 and 10. It says, since We have now been justified, you and I, we, those in Christ, those who have believed and trusted in the person and the work of Jesus. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? That we will be saved from the divine justice of God against the sin of the world. Divine justice is the wrath of God, the just wrath of God. For if while we were God's enemies, it's interesting, I want to make sure that we're getting that. For a while, we, he's speaking to believers here. He's, he's helping believers remember that once we weren't in Christ, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having now been reconciled, once we were enemies of God, now we are reconciled. Shall we be saved through his life? Here's what I want you to understand. Once I was an enemy of God, I was, in, in, I was not reconciled. I was not redeemed. I was not, not restored. I had the image of God. God had created me with his very image and likeness, but I wasn't in Christ and the scriptures teach us in Romans 5 that we were once an enemy. Of, be it, to be apart from Christ is an enemy of God. And so again, Jesus quotes Psalm 110. And in Mark 12, it says, enemies under, when it says enemies under your feet, I've always thought like this is speaking about Jesus is like enemy enemies. But what Jesus is talking about here is he's given a prophecy of the fact that you and I, who were once enemies, are now in Christ and we are under his feet. And Jesus is speaking about us here. And if you, if you look closely, if, you're, if, if, you, if you look at what Jesus is saying in Mark 12, and then you uh, look at that side by side with what he's saying in Psalm 110, you're going to see something that I want to point out. Again, Mark 12, it says, until I put your enemies under your feet. But when you look closely at Psalm 110, it says, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This isn't talking about Jesus trampling on the believers. This is talking about the believers being at rest in Christ with Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God. His work is finished he is at rest and so in Christ we are also in rest with him but at first thought I look at this until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet and I I just go I'm not sure I want to be a footstool that I'm not sure that feels good Uh, but let's think about this deeper and let's look closer 
at what the footstool meant in the Old Testament. And when we look closer, 3D images begin to appear. The footstool of God in the Old Testament is a reference to the Ark of the Covenant. A few verses for you to read later. First uh, Chronicles 28 verse 2, Psalm 99 verse 5. Psalm 132, verses 7 and 8. And it's speaking about the Ark of the Covenant being the place, the footstool of God is the place where God dwells. The Ark of the Covenant carried the very presence of God. And so they would worship God at His footstool. So again, the footstool was a reference to the Ark of the Covenant, and that was a place where God was dwelling Where does God, where does the presence of God dwell in the new covenant? It's no longer in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. In the new covenant, the dwelling place of God is in you and it's in me and it's in every person that believes and trusts in the name of Jesus that gets the the seal of the Holy Spirit in their, in their souls, in their lives, in their spirits. And all those who believe in and trust Jesus and follow Jesus, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So um, I just wrote in my notes here, are you picking this up? I want to make sure I'm explaining this, that you're picking this up. Um, Jesus saying making his enemies his footstool is... Is a, is, a, is, a, is a vision of how Jesus has come to rescue and redeem and restore and save and put you at a place of rest. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you, tell me, tell me, rest. Exactly. I will give you rest. I am at rest. Jesus is at rest. We are together at rest. The work is done. I had this visual of my dad's recliner and thinking about a footstool. And my dad would come home from work and he had his recliner and he would kick kick his shoes off uh, and he would pull that recliner out and he would kick his feet up. The work was done. It was time to rest. That is what Jesus is saying that people have in me. In the Messiah, they get to be at rest. They get to be saved and be with me in my place of rest. I'm at rest. You are at rest. The work is done. Well, an astute reader of Psalm 110, you're going to continue to read. Uh, You're going to ask this question, what about punishing the wicked? Because Psalm 110 also talks about that. Verse 5 in Psalm 10 says that Messiah will crush kings on the day of his wrath, again, his just wrath, his, his um, divine just wrath. See, in Christ, I was an enemy, and I've been made a son, and I am a footstool. And Jesus paid the justice in my place by his life and death, which gives me rest. But when a man, when a person rejects Christ, it's still justice. There is still divine justice. But rejecting Christ and His work means that the wrath, the divine justice of God, um, doesn't come on Jesus. It means it comes on 
me. And so the question really is, do I want the divine wrath of God to fall on Jesus in my place or do I want it to fall on me? The truth of the gospel, the proclamation of the good news of Jesus is that Jesus has come to rescue you, to save you, to take on the full wrath of God on the cross of Calvary in your place, in your place so that you wouldn't have to to take on the wrath that the, by the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, Romans 6, 23. Jesus rescues you and makes you his footstool, or you reject the rescue and you face his divine justice, his divine wrath. These are the choices. And the crowd of people, again, they were delighted in hearing this from Jesus. It was so much clarity. It was so much comfort. It was so much hope for their hopelessness that the Messiah was in their very midst and that he had come to rescue them. He was opening the door wide. He was then, he has been, he is, he will be. He was opening the door wide for them to be his footstool, for them to be saved and for them to be at rest in Jesus. I hope, I hope and pray that I've been clear with you about what um, God helped me see in the text this week uh, and specifically uh, looking at Psalm 110 and understanding uh, that I get to be the footstool of God. I am at rest because he is at rest. So I pray uh, that as this was clarifying and comforting and hope-filled for these listeners, that they were delighted, I pray, uh, and I hope that as we've looked at this, that you, you also are delighted in the rescue that has come for you. And I pray that you choose this gift of life that Jesus has given to us. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this opportunity to open your word and study uh, and grow and learn and to be refreshed. I do pray that this teaching would be a source of uh, comfort and encouragement and clarity to each person that is listening, that they would understand that your very dwelling place is in them. It's no longer in the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies that it's in each of us, the footstool that we worship. We worship God at the footstool, that we worship God right where we are because your very presence dwells in us. Uh, we thank you for this new message, this new covenant of grace and the freedom and the hope that it brings to our lives. And I pray that we would be conduits of this comfort and this freedom and this hope that we have uh, to people uh, in our lives and that we would go out of our way to take initiative to encourage people with this gospel message that invites all to come to the living water to never be thirsty again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I'm grateful to spend these moments uh, with you as always. Uh, 
I'm excited to hand it back to my friend uh, Andrew Spada and his team that will be leading us in one more song. As we do every Sunday in our online service, we encourage you to come to the communion table now and receive and be reminded to taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, There'll be a slide at the end of the service as you're stirred in worship to bring offerings uh, to this vision and this mission as uh, a church family. You can do that online. Uh, or to our P.O. box. God bless each one of you.